backwards. Last time we were in the book of Hebrews, we were in chapter 7, I believe. Now we go back to 5 and uh, because we're kind of following a theme of Jesus as the high priest, but we jumped over some things, and some of you noticed that. And uh, most notably, people noticed that we jumped chapter 6, which has to do with uh, a pretty heavy subject and all. And so we'll probably deal with that next Sunday, and if you're not here, you lose your salvation. So that's all there is to that. So. Listen, the Lord doesn't use guilt or condemnation as a motivation, but I, I'm not the Lord. I'm just kidding. Chapter 5, verse 11. The writer of the book of Hebrews, inspired by the Spirit, says, Of whom, speaking of Melchizedek, we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that you know us so well. And despite that, you love us so much. And Lord, you know just what we need to hear from your, wisdom, your word, the wisdom that we need to be directed toward our lives. We thank you for the treasure chest that your Bible is. Everywhere we turn, it's a living book and it has something important to say to us. And that's important to us, Lord, in our relationship with you. Thank you for your wisdom and thank you for your power that stands behind everything that you describe in your book, stands behind every promise. We thank you this morning as we do so often, but we never cease to be excited to do so. Thank you this morning for being our God. <laughs> we can't believe that you're our God. There's no way we would even try to improve upon you. You are the God we need. You are a Savior, Lord, and we thank you for saving us into salvation for everlasting life and then saving us over and over again out of the miry clay and the difficulty that we find ourselves in in the course of life. And, Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that we can walk in peace in this volatile world that we live in. We thank you this morning that you're greater than any circumstance that's happening in this world. Anything that's happening on a global scale, anything that's happening in our individual lives, Lord. We thank you for your greatness, the greatness of your love for us, the greatness of your wisdom, as we've said, the greatness of your power, the greatness of your promises, Lord. 
Thank you, Lord, for your greatness and all of it applied to our lives. Thank you for the privilege of being your children this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Jewish Christians being addressed by the writer of the book of Hebrews, we remember, really are paying a very significant price for their faith in Christ. They are the objects of a great persecution that was being meted out against all Christians, Jew and Gentile alike, at the time of a Roman Caesar by the name of Caesar Nero. And in addition to this empire-wide persecution that Caesar Nero was bringing against these Christians, they were also facing other persecutions in their life as well. And all of this great difficulty that they were facing now in their Christian life had them considering abandoning the call of Christ upon their lives to follow him, whatever the cost might be, and it had them thinking about returning to their former religious roots and, uh, and that heritage of salvation based upon religious works as opposed to faith in Christ. And they were thinking about this, tempted to do this, in order to escape the difficulty that they were facing by virtue of being faithful to the Lord. And at this point in the letter, the writer puts his finger on the real cause of their wavering. The real cause of their wavering is not the trial that they're in. It isn't the persecution that they're facing. They were the true and the deeper cause was due to the lack of spiritual maturity that was in their life. And that lack of spiritual maturity could be traced back to a failure on their part to go deep in their knowledge of God's Word and a failure to apply God's Word to their lives. And so the great crisis of faith that they were experiencing simply revealed that they did not have a satisfactory spiritual foundation in their life, a foundation that was sufficient for the kind of trial that they found themselves in. And this is an important lesson for us to examine this morning. I have seen it over and over again through the years as a Christian, not just as a pastor, but as a Christian, not just in overseeing a congregation, but in personal relationships as well. So I know how important this passage of the book of Hebrews is. A great crisis comes into the life of a Christian, and the crisis is so great it just rocks their world. This leaves their heads spinning. And they know just enough of the Bible to be saved. They know that salvation is a gift from God, that they, don't, they can't earn salvation. They've become saved. They know that the Holy Spirit has baptized them into God's family. They've been water baptized themselves. They know that there is a heaven and there is a hell on the other side of this life, a heaven and a hell that awaits everyone on the basis of what we do with Christ for the forgiveness of our sins in this life. But, that, but they never go much further in their knowledge of the Word of God than that. They never quite learn about trials and how to handle them biblically. 
They never go deep enough in the Word of God to learn about temptations and how to handle them in a God-honoring way or about persecution and how to view it biblically. And sometimes a person can be born again, they can be on their way to heaven even, and they do not yet realize that just because we are Christians, we are not exempted from hardship in this life. And that sometimes, as the Bible teaches, this life will be harder for us as Christians than anyone else in in this world. We face all of the trials everybody else faces in this world. Whether they know the Lord or they don't know the Lord, we face all the same challenges. We're trying to put food on that table for ourselves and for our family. We're trying to get enough gas in the gas tank to get to and from work, dealing with medical issues, dealing with relationship issues, these things that we all face whether we're Christians or not Christians. But on top of all of that as Christians, we face things, at least in terms of magnitude, that those that don't know Christ don't face. There is a level of spiritual warfare and demonic opposition that comes against us that the world knows absolutely nothing about. There's the price that we pay individually to be faithful to God's call upon our lives. There's a price that is paid for being uncompromising in our obedience to the Lord, which the world knows nothing about. And the blessings of being a Christian outstrip all of the trials and difficulties and hardships that we face by far. So we don't whine and we don't complain related to any of that. But there is the recognition, and some people don't have it, that just because I've become a Christian doesn't mean that I sit down in my lazy boy chair and then people are going to serve me and pamper me all the way until the day comes that I go into heaven. And so they bring an unrealistic expectation to Christianity an expectation that is really a fantasy that's formed in their mind and not based upon the Scriptures. And when a person does that, we set ourselves up for disappointment. Jesus declared, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world." Elsewhere in the book of John, John chapter 15, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, we say praise the Lord for that, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me... They will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus spoke to a church um, that was located in a city called Smyrna in the ancient world. It was one of his seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 2, this is what Jesus declared to John to write to that church of Smyrna. He said, Do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. Suffer? Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison 
that you may be tested, and you'll have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Be faithful and Excuse me, can I have door number two? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Very sobering passages about what it means to live as a Christian in the fallenness of this world. Sometimes a Christian on their way to heaven, and sometimes they have this expectation that, you know, being a Christian is going to be something that is very, very easy. Or sometimes you'll see a Christian get hit by a great and terrible storm in life. And when they get hit by that storm, it dawns on them that they have frittered away weeks and months and years of opportunity to go deep in their knowledge of the Word of God, to go deep in a relationship with God. And God is always trying to take us deep in His Word, our knowledge of the Word of God, deep in our relationship with Him because He wants us to have a storm relationship with Him because storms are coming. And sometimes this gigantic storm comes into the life of a Christian and the Christian it dawns on them in that second, I have wasted months and years and in some cases decades of my life, I've just thrown that time away instead of thinking that life was always going to be this easy, it was always going to be this uh, non-challenging, and then one day, boom, this thing comes in out of left field, and a person realizes, oh, all of that other time was given to me to prepare for this, and now I find myself in the middle of it unprepared. And it's one of the saddest things. If you're in that place today, there's hope for you. I don't mean to bury you today, but sometimes we have to deal with things that are painful to some part uh, of the congregation in order to make an important point. But this whole situation where so so often a person finds themselves in in this place of, of a trial now that requires a deep knowledge of the Word of God and a deep personal relationship and history with Christ. And now, in the middle of the crisis, they are frantically searching to try and find that when God intended that to be built into their lives all along. Now, Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, He said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, speaking of His Word, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Not only in the rock of God's Word, but on the rock, the added rock of living in obedience to God's Word. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine, Jesus said, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And this is what the writer of the book of Hebrews is addressing to these Jewish Christians. They find themselves in a place now, not because it was God's fault, but because of their own decision-making 
that they find themselves in the middle of a trial that they have not properly prepared themselves for in their knowledge of the Scriptures and also in the depth of their relationship uh, with God. And so here, here is the writer now wanting to get uh, speak to them related to this. Now is the time in our Christian lives to develop a storm relationship with God, a storm depth in the Word of God, and not to wait until the storm comes to endeavor to do that. Because trials are hard enough. I mean, you're talking about the wind blowing and the storm and the, and the greatness of, the, uh, of everything assaulting these houses as Jesus uses them as an illustration of our life. You can have a, a very deep relationship with God and a fabulous understanding of the Scriptures, and storms can come into our lives that will really rock us. I mean, they can really hit us hard. But if a person has that same storm come and they don't have these things, well, it's just a terrible place to be. And the writer of the book of Hebrews would spare us that kind of an experience. And in this passage of Scripture, the writer of the book of Hebrews reveals two things to us in the light of all of this. First, he gives us the marks of spiritual immaturity related to these things. And then second, he tells us how to correct it. So his listing of the marks of spiritual immaturity that mark these Jewish believers, and we want to examine them to make sure that they don't mark our lives, or if they do, that we will uh, be quick in making a correction of it. He tells us in verse 11 that they were dull of hearing. You say, what is that exactly? The word dull means lazy. It means sluggish. It means dull. Lazy, sluggish, dull. <laughs> this, is, this sounds just like the words that they are. And they were lazy, sluggish, dull hearers of the Word of God as opposed to being ready, diligent, eager hearers of the Word of God. What is a lazy here? A person who's not willing to put any effort into learning God's Word. Ouch. What is a sluggish here? The person who possesses no inward motivation to learn God's Word. This is the kind of person that never brings the want to anytime the Bible is open. They come into an environment like this or any place that the Word's being taught. They cross their arms and they look at whoever's teaching the Word and they say, All right, move me. And they believe the complete responsibility for their learning the Bible lays, lies completely in the teacher and has nothing to do with them. And they'll spend their whole life blaming the series of teachers that they've sat under or search all of their life from church to church to church to church and end up being completely disappointed until it dawns on them that they play a vital part in their own growth in the Word of God. You have to bring the want to, to learning the Word of God in order to learn it. I mean, you look at people who take subjects that are very challenging, 
under the motivation of getting a job or getting an education or making a fortune or whatever it might be. People take classes all of the time and they give the very best of their effort in order to learn that subject for some inferior reason. And here, for us as Christians, he's talking to Christians here, here we have a situation where the subject is God. The payoff is, a, is to increase in our knowledge of God and as a result increase in the depth in meaningfulness of our relationship with God. What in the world can compare with that? And so there's that recognition, I've got to bring something to this if I'm going to learn. And the fact that I haven't learned after months and years of being a Christian isn't solely the responsibility or maybe even supremely the responsibility of teachers if I haven't understood yet that I need to bring a motivation to learn the Word of God to all of that as well. And then the, the dull here, it, 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 in that vein, it's important to realize that not only are there dull preachers, and I take full responsibility... But they're also dull listeners. Teachers take almost exclusively, Bible pastors and teachers and preachers almost exclusively take the hit in the body of Christ for being dull. And we can be dull. And, And so it's not a justification for that. But there are just as many people who get nothing out of anything related to the Word of God because they are a dull listener. There are, even as there are dull preachers, there are dull listeners. How do you like those apples? It's good for us to hear. It's good for us to realize. Because I, I have kind of a twofold thing in this deal because I teach the Word of God, but I'm also learning all of the time, listening to teaching and, and learning uh, the, the Word of God. So sometimes people will head for home after a service and they're heading home to have lunch and on the drive home or over lunch there can be the discussion over how dull the preacher was or the sermon was. Oh, don't laugh. You give yourself away. (laughs) But what you don't know is sometimes the preacher heads home for lunch and he's thinking about dull listeners. There are a lot of dull listeners. If everyone in the church that you attend and everyone in the Bible study that you're attending is excited and they're learning and they're growing in the Word of God and their life is being changed and you're the only one who isn't, you might want to take a look at yourself and your own personal responsibility for your spiritual lethargy. And realizing that there are dull hearers isn't just important for uh, the Bible student, the listener, to be aware of, but the Bible teacher needs to be aware of it also. Because if the Bible teacher doesn't realize that there is a part of this dynamic that lies beyond their control, then we will start to do crazy things that we're not intended to do. If I try to take responsibility not only for the teaching of the Word of God, but also for the hearing of the Word of God on the part of those that I'm teaching the Word to, 
and I run into some number of dull listeners, then I will begin to feel like it's my responsibility to correct that for them. And one of the ways that you do is then you kind of condescend to their carnality, and then you do whatever you can do to keep this unmotivated, dull listener uh, attentive, where then you resort to all kinds of things, crazy things sometimes, I remember it was a few years ago now, but there was this little spurt of pastors who were before they would to come into the sanctuary to begin the teaching part of the service. They would turn on the fog machines and the preacher would ride his Harley Davidson down the center aisle and come up into the, into the pulpit. And I look at that kind of thing and I said, if that's what it takes to get the attention of a congregation, I quit. Because it's a reflection on the congregation. If you're going to appeal to carnality, then you've put yourself on a road. What do you do the next week? Drive a white freight lighter down the center aisle? And then ride ponies? Chariot like Ben-Hur the fourth Sunday? I mean, where does the whole thing end? And so sometimes you see just some of the dopey, crazy things that are happening in church that teachers are doing in order to accommodate or to correct this dull listener. And some of it is very, very silly. And it's good for us to realize that's not entirely our responsibility, and it keeps us from lowering the esteem of uh, the sacred desk or the pulpit or the handling of the Word of God. Well, something worse can happen if a Bible teacher doesn't realize that there are dull listeners that he has or she has no control over. And that, and, and the worst thing is, is that that teacher will cease to teach difficult subjects from the Bible. They will just accept the fact that here is a group of people who is, will only accept milk. They will only accept the basics. They will only accept an endless stream of stories and jokes to keep their attention. That's what they'll talk about most at the end of the service. So they catch you at the back door. But after all, we live in the year 2012. People's attention spans are so short. We just have to accept the reality. So we're not going to talk about justification. We're not going to talk about sanctification. We're not going to talk about end times because that's a pretty demanding subject in order to understand that comprehensively. We're not going to talk about this subject and that subject. And then all of a sudden we've gutted the Bible because we're now just teaching what it is that, that falls within the very limited attention span that people are bringing in, into a, a congregation. And that's a ter- that, don't ever do that if you're a Bible teacher. Don't ever do that. Everybody has a right to hear the Word of God, to hear the whole counsel of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation, including Melchizedek. As hard as Melchizedek is to understand, everybody has a right to hear those things. We have a responsibility to teach and preach those things. What a person does with those things, we don't have control over, and we will not answer for that. They will answer for that, but we will answer for sharing the whole counsel of the Word of God. And if we take and dumb down 
the teaching of the Word of God to accommodate the dullest of listeners, then pretty soon, as old J. Vernon McGee used to say, now in heaven we'll end up preaching sermonettes for Christianettes. And uh, so we don't uh, want to do that. Now, a dull, lazy listener will do more harm to himself than any dull, lazy preacher or teacher will do to him. And the problem is, is the dull listener will almost always never figure out, except for from a passage like this, that he's the one that's at fault. And that's why verses like verse 11 and chapter 5 are important verses within the Bible. They wake us up to the fact. And for some of us in the room here today, the fact that, wow, I'm I'm supposed to be motivated in this? I'm supposed to concentrate in this? I'm supposed to give this my very best in a way that honors God and is proportional to the subject of the Bible. And sometimes that light can go on, and a verse like this is important for that light to go on. Now, uh, I heard a joke some time ago that I thought was very funny in this vein. There were three, a a doctor, a lawyer, and a, a, a pastor went out Uh, deer hunting. And as they all had their rifles, this great buck appeared on the top of a a ravine. All of them shot their rifles at the same time. The buck toppled over the other side of the ravine. And the lawyer, none of them knowing who could claim the kill, and the lawyer said, well, listen, I've been in a lot of cases, a lot of forensics and stuff like that and all of this. I know a little bit about what a bullet looks like, from what angle, all of these things. I'll go down and find out which one of us got the kill. So he went down the ravine, examined the buck, came back, and he said, that's my buck. The doctor said, oh, no, no, no. Before, he said, before I became a surgeon, he said, I used to do autopsies, so I understand a little bit about this thing too, the entrance wounds and how all of this I'll go down and examine uh, to determine who, the, who got the buck. So he did the same thing, went down the ravine, did the examination, came back up, and he said to the lawyer, he said, it's the preacher's. He said, it's not yours and it's not mine. The lawyer said, how do you know? He said, that bullet went in one ear and out the other. <laughs> now, sometimes it is the fault of the teacher, but very often it is the fault of the listener. And it is good to realize that we need to bring the want to in our study of the Word of God. A second mark of spiritual immaturity he speaks of in verse 12 is the inability of a Christian to reproduce themselves. So we judge a human being to be physically mature by virtue of the fact that they have reached a place uh, where they can reproduce themselves. And the same thing is true of a Christian. And a Christian becomes spiritually mature when we have the ability to reproduce ourselves spiritually. That is, we are able to talk with someone who doesn't know the Lord yet, share the gospel with them in a simple, clear way, answer their questions, pray with them to receive the Lord, and then be of some use to them in the early part of the growth in their uh, new Christian life. The writer explains, uh, exhorted them 
Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. In other words, they had been Christians long enough to have grasped and internalized the Word of God so that they could then teach others, lead others to Christ, help them grow in the Lord, to do for others what somebody had done for them and had done uh, for each of us. It doesn't mean that every Christian is called and gifted to teach uh, the Bible in the same way that an elder or a pastor might be gifted or, or called, but every Christian should know their Bible well enough to be able to pass on biblical truths to somebody else that's, that has been passed on to them. And so they had been Christians long enough that they should... The, the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, I shouldn't need to sit down and write this letter. Even inspired by the Holy Spirit, God works it all together for good. I'm glad for the letter. But his point is, you folks have been around long enough to hit a persecution like you're hitting. You ought to be encouraging the rest of the body of Christ who is younger in the faith to continue on with Christ and not to abandon Christ in, in the face of persecution rather than somebody having to spend time keeping your failing faith afloat. And so that's what he's, he's speaking to them. They've been around too long to be needing what they were getting here when they should have been encouraging others. Now, if you're a new Christian, all of that's fine. But they weren't new Christians. While we all receive, need to receive encouragement and, and instruction as Christians, and we all do, and no matter how mature we are, what kind of a relationship we have with the Lord, we all need encouragement. There was a beautiful word from Pastor Sandy last Sunday morning, just pure encouragement. So we all need uh, that kind of thing. And, but the, when we look around, but we should... Maturity is marked by receiving encouragement, but maturity is, is marked in our lives... When we come to a place in our Christian life where we look around and suddenly we realize, hey, for months and for years, I have given away far more of myself to the building up of Christians and the building up of other people than I ever receive any more from people. Sometimes people can get a chip on their shoulder. I'm not going to that church. All I do is just give, give, give. What about me? I need a hug too. Who's going to encourage me? And so we get in this. I'm going to go fight a church where I get more out of it than I have to give. What if everybody does that? What kind of a church are you going to have? So it's a sign of maturity. Just like this is what adults do. This is what parents do. We should do. They come in and there's the recognition, we are going to give far more into these children than we will ever get back from these children till we're really old, and then we'll demand it. <laughs> I want my sandwich. You're living in the spare bedroom. It all comes back. But there is that maturity of recognizing that there should be the place where we are giving away more 
than what it is that that we are receiving. It's a good thing. It's a good sign in our lives, and it's healthy. Another mark of spirituality in uh, the latter part of verse 12 and verse 13 is the ability to eat solid food, spiritually speaking, as opposed to only being able to handle a diet of milk. Now, in the physical realm, following uh, birth, there's a period in which a child, all that child can drink, all that it, the, the child can handle is milk. And that's fine when you're that age and n- nothing uh, wrong with that. But there is something wrong when as, as the child grows, he, never, or he or she never moves from milk to solid food. And so the same thing is true spiritually. We're brand-new Christians. It's all milk. It's all basics. It's all the simplest truths because we're growing. And that's perfectly fine. But we should then grow just like children do. Pretty soon you're feeding them, you know, pureed peas and applesauce and all of these things, and there's the progression until they're eating uh, steak, tofu. <laughs> but they... but. There's that growth, and we recognize that this is healthy, their capacity for what it is that they, they're able uh, to eat. And so as a new Christian, yes, of course, we can only understand the simplest of things. Nothing wrong with that. But the problem arises when a Christian never grows beyond that spiritual infancy. You run into them. You both get saved at the same time. You run into them five years later. They don't know anything more than they knew five years earlier. Saved on their way to heaven, haven't gone any deeper in their relationship with the Lord, any deeper in the Word of God. They're still spiritual babies. They haven't grown spiritually. Now you go in and somebody, you visit somebody that's just had a baby and they say, come in here and he, you know, he or she's just, the baby's just right there in the crib and you go in and the baby's just there on the big eyes and rosy cheeks and slobber, you know, all over the, and they see you and you can get them to laugh and they got those jerky movements. You know how they do like that? They're getting their coordination down and they're smiling at you. And it's just great. You just love that in a child. Get the camera out, take the pictures and everything. You see that same kid 20 years later, now an adult. Say, is Joe around? Yeah, come on in here. Take him into the crib and here he is. kicking his little legs out like this and he sees you, you know. There's something wrong with that. If you walked into that physical scene, you would just, you would want to leave the room immediately because it would completely break your heart. You just say, I can't, I can't see that. I can't, I can't know that. And here God, to the writer of the book of Hebrews says, in essence is saying, that's from heaven's vantage point, that's, the, that's how tragic Christians who fail to grow from infancy into, spiritually mature, into spiritual maturity, that's how heartbreaking it is from the perspective of heaven. And that's something that's important for us to hear because, again, we live in a culture where we just, everything's being dumbed down. That may get corrected someday. But everything's getting dumbed down, including spiritually. And we just look and we say, it's acceptable just to hover this far above salvation. That's okay. It's not okay. And it wasn't okay for, the, for the, these Jewish Christians. And the writer of Hebrews wanted to let them know that. And he wanted to let 
us, <clears throat> us know that as, as well. And so the longer we are Christians, the more we should be growing in our hunger for the Word of God, our desire to learn the weightier, meatier things of God. Where even when something begins to get difficult and you, hear, and you listen to somebody that's teaching the Bible and you say, okay, I've either got to buckle down and concentrate here to follow what's happening here, or I'm just going to check out and think about what kind of uh, barbecue sauce they're going to have as a sampler at Costco after the service. And we make that decision all of the time. And so that realization that, no, I should be growing to where I can handle greater and greater and deeper and stronger and meatier truth of, of God's Word. Another mark of spiritual maturity, verse 13, the latter half of it, is to be skilled in the word of righteousness. So obviously these Jewish Christians, they were uh, unskilled. So in other words, even the little bit of the Bible that they did know, they didn't use it to fashion their thinking or their decision-making. There's something called a, um, a working knowledge of the word of God. It slipped my mind for a second. But I like the phrase, and, and I like it being a part of my heart, a working knowledge of the Word of God. Here's how that works. On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples in that upper room, as Jesus had promised. There was a sound of a great rushing wind. Holy Spirit came upon them. They began to speak in tongues. They were declaring the wonderful works of God. Jewish pilgrims from all around the world were listening to this praise of God in their own languages, and they came to the conclusion that all of these Christians were drunk. The Apostle Peter is listening to all of this. He's listening to the, their assessment of what's happening here. He stands up. And he declared to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, nine in the morning, but this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he begins to quote this very lengthy section of Scripture from the book of Joel in the Old Testament. And then he jumps over and he quotes King David in Psalm 16. And then he preaches a little bit more and he quotes from King David's writing in Psalm 110. And here he is, a situation has arisen in his life and he begins to address it on the basis of the Word of God in his own heart. Again, he's got a working knowledge of the Scriptures. He knows enough of the Scriptures that he can take the circumstances of life that are happening around him, test it by the Scriptures, and know from the Scriptures what he ought to say, not say, do, not do in that given circumstance. So the learning of the Word of God is just the beginning. It isn't that we come into a room like this or to a Bible study and now I've amassed all of this intellectual knowledge related to the Word of God. Maturity comes. I'm learning those things so that it can translate into the daily of my life. How I think about things.
things, what I think about things, my decision-making, my attitudes, the decisions, my actions, all of them dominated by the Word of God. And so that we're not only hearing the Word of God, but we're also doing the Word of God. We have the ability to apply it to our lives. Sometimes you run into Christians. And I'm not trying to you know, pound, you know, somebody into the ground here this morning, but people who have known the Lord for five years, for ten years, they hit these different circumstances in life. They don't have the foggiest idea what the Bible says they're supposed to do there. They don't even know that the Bible addresses what they're supposed to do there. We must not find ourselves in that place. We're to know the Bible, and we're to know it very, very well. In verse 14, another mark of spiritual maturity is to, by reason of use, to have our senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And again, they were failing to do this. What's he saying here? In other words, the mature Christian is one who uses the Bible to discern both good and evil. We use the the Bible in order to define what is good and bad and right and wrong. That's maturity on our part. We accept God's definitions for good, and we make them our definitions. We accept God's definitions for bad or for wrong, and that becomes what we think about that uh, issue as as well. And we do that knowing that as we do that, it protects us from coming into bondage to sin. It also protects us from being pulled into a false doctrine. And so if God's Word says such and such, then that settles it for a spiritually mature person. I don't know how many times you you run into it too. You live in the same world. You're part of the same body of Christ that I am. So are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. But I don't believe this. Blah, blah, blah. They lay the thing out. Oh, so you're smarter than God in that area, huh? You ever look at a human life that goes five miles down that path or a hundred miles down that path, supplanting God's definition of right and wrong in that situation with their own, and tell me what that person looks like at the end of their life? Have you done that yet on that? Because wisdom is justified by her children. Wisdom earns the right to be called wisdom, not because it declares itself to be wisdom. It earns the right to be called wisdom on the basis of the quality of human being it produces. And so this kind of person, they, the Word of God says it, then that settles it for them. If the Bible says that they're not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, then that's that related to that issue. If the Bible says not to steal or to lie, that is the definition of right and wrong in that area of life. If the Bible says that man's righteousness is his filthy rags, then that settles the issue. If the Bible says that I can't be saved on the basis of religious works, then that settles the issue. And these... Hebrew believers are wavering because, number one, they didn't know their Bibles as well as they should have, and number two, they had not yet given the Word of God the kind of authoritative place in their lives that it deserved to have in their lives. Nobody even considers abandoning Christ 
to get out from under suffering and difficulty who is allowing the Bible to form their definitions of right and wrong and good and bad. Their weaknesses, again, their problem is not with the suffering. The problem, their problem that they're dealing with is their attitude toward the Word of God. And so they're wavering here if, because they were still trying to decide things, these definitions of right and wrong and good and bad that was, were, have already been defined by God. Now I close with this. The solution to the problem of spiritual immaturity, he tells us in chapter 6, verse 1, is a commitment to go on to perfection. And the word perfection there means maturity. The solution to immaturity is a commitment to move forward toward maturity. You say, well, how in the world uh, do we do that? By moving beyond, he tells us in verses 1 and 2, the elementary doctrines that should have been settled in their hearts a long time ago. And he gives some examples. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. That's talking about salvation. The fact that salvation is not on the basis of works, but on the basis of faith. That's a, that's a basic doctrine. The doctrine of baptisms, referring to water baptism, everything that it represents. The baptism with the Holy Spirit once we are saved. The laying on of hands for ordination or for the receiving of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. These ABC kind of doctrines includes resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The idea that there is a life after this life in which everyone is either going to for eternity be in heaven or they're going to be in hell on the basis of what I do with Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. And I'm responsible for that decision. Sometimes they have these blogs. You may be a blogger. I, and God bless you. I, don't like, I like some blogs. Some of them I don't. But I've seen some blogs, Christian blogs, on there where people that really ought to know better. I mean, they've been around forever and ever, and they're still debating whether there is an eternal judgment for rejecting Christ. And they're all brainy, and they're all smart, and they're all this, and they lay out this, and they quote this historic and this thing, and over here, and the whole deal, and all. And the, and the writer of the book of Hebrews says, if you're still mishmashing with that kind of stuff, don't consider yourself to be spiritually mature. That's the position of immaturity, still trying to figure out and deal with the ABCs of, of, of Christianity. And then he tells us, that we need to go on to maturity or on to perfection, spiritually speaking, there in uh, verse 1 of chapter uh, 6, by committing to growing spiritually as a Christian. You say, how in the world do we do that? We just talked about it. By always being an eager, motivated hearer of the Word of God, as opposed to being a dull hearer of the Word of God, Number two, by learning the Word of God well enough that I could lead a person into salvation in Christ and then help them in their grow in their early walk with the Lord just as somebody else did for us. Number three, to be willing to move from the milk of God's Word to the meat of God's Word, having an attitude as a Christian to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the meatier, stronger weightier truths of God's Word. 
And then number four, developing a working knowledge of the Word of God, where I'm not only hearing it, but I'm applying it to my life as a daily practice. And then number five, by accepting the Bible's definitions of good and evil and right and wrong, and thus protecting myself from bondage to sin and also from false doctrine. And it's interesting, all of these things related to maturity, they're all centered on a person's attitude toward the Word of God. I don't know if you've ever had anybody say something like this to you in in the course of life, but sometimes the exhortation to grow up can really sting. I don't know if you've ever had anybody say, listen, grow up, especially when it's deserved. I'll tell you, that hurts. But sometimes it's necessary, and sometimes it's necessary even spiritually in order to wake us up from falling asleep spiritually and failing to become spiritually mature. And I'll tell you, this is a word from the writer of the book of Hebrews to them and to us related to what our attitude is toward the Word of God and its place in our lives, which only each of us knows individually, but where there might be some of us in the room where he comes off of the pages of Scripture and just says to you in the privacy of your heart, it's time to grow up related to being a Christian and to grow up as it relates to our attitude toward the Word of God and the commitment to which we give ourselves to growth in this peerless, wonderful, priceless book that we get to hold in our hands and have available to us every single day. I'll tell you, I think it's a good word of the writer to those first-century Jewish believers, and I know it's a good word to us as well. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord, we love your whole word. We love the whole Bible. We recognize our need for everything that you say in your word. And we just receive this exhortation from your word today. We love the exhortive text, Lord. Without it, we would fall asleep in our Christian life. Thank you for the strength of what your Holy Spirit has said here in this passage. And we pray, Lord, in each one of our lives, we pray for one another. We pray for ourselves individually and specifically that everything that this passage is intended to produce within us related to your word, that you would not Let us loose of us until that is accomplished in our lives. Lord, we love your word. We love the potential of how deep we can go in our personal relationship with you, the possibilities that are there, even this side of heaven, Lord. And we thank you for clarity like this that keeps us from missing what is priceless and the most valuable things in life. Thank you, Lord, for your word, what it does in us. May this passage again just build up, cut away, exhort, Lord, encourage everywhere that it's intended to in each one of our lives by your Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.